We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. It is quite lovely talking to you. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Historically, your reputation with media is very difficult. Why was it like that when you were a player? Because it's... It's not like that now, not for me. You're prepared, so we can talk if you're prepared. You have no idea the sports writing guys that I had to deal with in the early 70s. They were like, you know, from the 1930s. They they were unprepared, and any black athlete who was probably stupid and semi-literate should not be uh, have the temerity to to speak to them about things that... uh, that black people aren't supposed to be talking about. That that didn't work too good with me. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is one of the greatest athletes of his generation. Google his fights with Bruce Lee. And he's one of the greatest basketball players of all time. But he calls himself a writer who played basketball. Basketball isn't who he was, it's what he did. Writing is at the core of who he is. For example, I asked him if he was playing for the Lakers now, would he kneel for the anthem or something? And he said, I would get my pen and my pad and I'd write about it, try to get it published. That has always been my answer to uh, how I want to express myself, especially when, you know, I was at odds with a number of the uh, sports reporters because, you know, I was thinking of stuff beyond sports and the issues that were important to me were things that they didn't want to talk about. But would you do something on the court or no? No, I wouldn't. Why I not? wouldn't do it on the court. He's a writer at his core. That said, don't get it twisted. Kareem has always been down for the protest. He just realized that his particular gifts meant that he had to really explain why he was protesting. I did do a demonstration on the UCLA campus right after Dr. King was assassinated. And uh, it was just a group of us standing along Bruin Walk in Westwood. We stood out there for an hour. Uh, Some of us had signs, some of us didn't. But a couple of people came up to me and said, you're getting a chance to play in the NBA. What are you doing out here? Like, I was being uppity and ungrateful for the opportunities that I got because I was uh, demonstrating about Dr. King's uh, assassination. So what do you say to that? They don't get it. The two don't have any relationship to each other. I might have a great opportunity to do things as a professional athlete, but black Americans are being murdered. Look at Dr. King, one of our leaders has been murdered. This bothers me and I'm going to be demonstrative about it. Kareem is an intellectual. 
His essays are thoughtful and circumspect and more clear-eyed than 99% of the hot takes that others furiously fling into the blogosphere. The guy is deep and was a thrill to talk to him. We talked a lot about basketball and the demise of the center. All the guys that are teaching the game, I don't think they're teaching post moves. And none of the kids want to learn post moves anyway. They want to shoot three-pointers. It's worth more. It's like lotto fever, man. It's crazy, man. And how Islam helped him on the court. The supreme being doesn't bet on games. So uh, it's up to us out here, and I just got to prepare myself and go out and do my best. And why it is he never got a chance to be a big-time coach. So many of the teams, they didn't know how to deal with someone of my background. I think my background kind of made me... uh, Radioactive. In, in, what in backgrounds? Just that I have an education and I've tried to enhance it and uh, I deal with people uh, based on what I know. And, you know, I, a lot of times I know as much as they don't. You know? you know, a lot of times I know as much as they do. <laughs> as much as they don't. <laughs> okay. Kareem is the author of 14 books. We did this interview right after the release of his book of essays, Writing on the Wall. So you'll hear me reference that several times. We did two interviews that week, one at the Barnes & Noble in Union Square in New York City in front of a great crowd, and the other a few days later at his publisher's office. We've put them together because it's all one great conversation with the awesome Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Touré Show. The game, the structure, the style of the game that you played, back to the basket, center, right, trying to get high percentage shots closer to the basket, that game has been completely forgotten. And there's very few, there's nobody who plays the center position the way you did with the back to the basket. And it's like trying to get the highest value shots, the furthest away, the three-pointers, as much as you can. Does this style interest you, disinterest you? Do you look down on it? Do you say, you know, you guys don't know how to play the game properly? Well, you know, there there are different theories about how to play the game. But I, I think getting high percentage shots really makes a lot of sense. But it also has to uh, dovetail with your defensive strategy also. So, you know, uh, a great team like the uh, Bill Russell Celtics, Bill was able to, to stymie any shots around the hoop. And uh, his team would uh, run and uh, get high percentage shots down, down court. And that was a winning strategy in that era. I mean, nobody's playing center the way you did. That is totally gone now. I think so, but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, someone can't have that type of skill and still come in and affect the game uh, in a meaningful way. We talked earlier today, and one of the things you said is the 85 finals against the Celtics was one of your most important moments as a player, one of your crowning moments as a player. You were the finals MVP that year, and you guys won, the Lakers won, but you had to go through the Memorial Day Massacre where you guys got crushed by like 40 points, the game was over in the middle of third quarter, and at that moment, and I lived in Boston, and at that moment it looked like the Celtics are gonna go on to destroy them. How did you come back to win, and why do you think of that as one of your crowning moments as a player, that series? Well, I think that uh, what happened to me personally in in that uh, series was once we made it into the finals, I kind of relaxed. 
And so I went into that first game uh, thinking that, uh, geez, uh, the worst is over. And, you know, the, the worst was yet to happen. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it kind of woke me up and made me uh, realize that uh, I had to kick my game up a couple of levels in order to uh, finish off what we started out to do because we had lost uh, in 84 to the Celtics and gave uh, a game away. And uh, that ended up being the, the, the crucial game. How could you go into a, Celtic, a series against the Celtics with Larry Bird, who, serious player, you know, clearly one of the great players at that time. How would you go in that series and think, like, oh, we got this? No, I didn't think that we got this. But for me personally, I, I figured uh, I, I've done my job. We're, we're in the finals. Uh, things, uh, you know, th things will be all right. And uh, they weren't. <laughs> one, of the, one of the chapters, one of the parts of the book that I really thought was really interesting, um, you talk about athletes and what they must do and how they have to be role models, how they have to be aware that they are role models. And you say, we can't pretend athletes aren't influencing our children's thinking and behavior, so we must demand higher standards from them. Like it or not, college and professional sports machines are turning them into role models, and if they aren't willing to accept that responsibility as part of the contract, then they should seek another profession. Very strong position. Talk a little bit about why you feel that way when you went through that life, right, superstar high school athlete, college athlete, and you know the way that superstar athletes from a teen age are coddled, they are given, you know, love for their athletic exploits, not for their character. Um, so the society is not training them to be role models, but then they become big college players, big pros, and we expect them to be role models. Are they even ready for that? Jeez, I, I don't know. You know, for me, uh being a black American, and in the era that I grew up in, all blacks realized that uh, they would be judged by the actions of any prominent black person. Yeah. Uh, and so th that, that burden uh, was something that, that you assumed. As soon as you got to, to do anything in a, in a prominent fashion, you assumed that burden because you knew that uh, all black people would be uh, judged on whatever it was that you did, and if you screwed up, uh, it would uh, set the, the race, race back. back. Well, it, I mean, that's absolutely right, and you talk about that. I came to realize that the Lou Alcindor, uh, that for the younger folks, that was his name 40, 50 years ago, the Lou Alcindor everyone was cheering wasn't really the person they wanted me to be. They wanted me to be the clean-cut example of racial equality, the poster boy for how anybody from any background, regardless of race, religion, or economic standing, could become an American success story. To them, I was living proof that racism was a mythological beast like the jackalope. When, when the audience is feeling like that, right, and I assume the media is part of it, how do you, how do you rebel against that? Well, you just have to show them that they're wrong and that uh, that, that, that is not the case. Um, there's a whole lot that has to be done. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, right after Dr. King was assassinated, uh, I was involved in a demonstration on UCLA's campus. And people, um, well, we were just standing there and uh, it was a, a silent, uh, uh, we stood there for an hour in silence and uh, some of us had signs. And uh, a number of times, people came up to me and said, you're getting the opportunity to play in the NBA. What are you demonstrating for? 
and they did not understand how these two things did not uh, relate to each other at all. The fact that uh, I, I was getting the opportunity to play in the NBA did, did not mean that uh, what happened to Dr. King was a, a tragedy and a crime. And uh, th that, that was a hard thing to get across to people. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's taken a while. You make a strong argument in the book about how college athletes should be paid, and I bet a lot of people agree with that. Um, you also make the argument that college athletes, and pros, as you already said, um, should be more politically aware and using their platform and protesting more. And you, you give a lot of respect to the brothers at uh, the University of Missouri who stood up for their rights. If we start to pay college athletes, will that constrain their ability to take those sort of protests against society or the college that is paying them? Well, I don't think so, because by doing what they do for their colleges, they're earning a lot of money for their school and for the NC2A. So uh, as long as they do that, uh, they should get paid uh, what they should get paid. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think the two things are, are mutually exclusive. What, I mean, what sort of structure do you think that they should get paid? Like, should everybody get the same amount, or should it be a sliding scale like the pros? What sort of pay price point are we even talking about? I think that, uh, I, I don't think that it, they should be made wealthy, but they should be given enough money to be comfortable and to be able to get, let's say, a car and take their girl out on Saturday evening. I mean, that, that's not unreasonable. And um, they should absolutely have their scholarship until they graduate. Uh, right now, if they get injured and uh, they, they can't play again, it's too bad. There is an insurance policy, but it only comes into effect if you're damaged uh, beyond repair. And there's been very few successful applications for, for that uh, insurance policy. You, so that has to change. You talk about in the book what it was like to be you know, the most celebrated team in the NCAA at that time, uh, and yet you go back to the room and you have no money and you're eating ramen noodles or whatever. I mean, right. what was that like to be like the most famous player in the country and everyone's talking about you, but you don't have a dime? Uh, it, it was, it, it's an odd situation. And you, you sit there and scratch your head and say, there's something wrong with this, but you know, how can I fix it? And uh, it, it was, it's been very difficult. And until people's attitudes change about this subject, uh, uh, college athletes will continue to be exploited. I don't want to just talk about college. I want to talk about the pros a little bit and then get into politics. Interesting question before I asked you, who was the hardest player for you to guard? And you had a really interesting answer. Well, the, the guys that were hard for me to guard were guys that could shoot the ball well. Uh, centers that could shoot the ball well from beyond the top of the key because it took me away from where I played my best defense. So, you know, guys like McAdoo or uh, Lane Beer or Dan Issel who could uh, shoot it sometimes from three-point range, I had to go out there and guard those guys, and that was a little bit more of a, 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 an issue for me. But I, I did pretty good against those guys. <laughs> <laughs> you did pretty good against everybody. I wonder if Lane Beer added an extra challenge because, you know, we know he was talking smack and elbows when the ref's not looking, and was that part of it? That was part of it. That was uh, part of his charm. Uh, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed, I, I know you saw the, the, the time that uh, uh, Robert Parrish uh, smacked him down, and, and the refs turned their backs on him. <laughs> they, they became very interested in something that was happening at the top of the arena, uh, you know, because they, they, they knew what Bill was all about. Um, you know, when you, I never forget Magic's first game and 
you guys won, and he jumped into your arms like you had won the championship. And is it, is it true you said, don't ever do that again? Well, I didn't say don't ever do that again, but I, I, I said, look, Mervyn, we, we have 81 more games. <laughs> um, if we go through this on, on every game, we're going to be burned out by Christmas. <laughs> and uh, he got it. But, you know, it, he, he also helped me at that point because uh, I, I came to realize because of his enthusiasm like that, that it was okay for me to enjoy the roses and, and smell them as we went along. And I hadn't been doing that. You know, it, it was very tough for me to try to maintain my position in the game. And uh, I, I did it without any smiles. So uh, all of a sudden I could start smiling and, and having some fun and it, it changed it for me. I mean, for a lot of athletes, the sport is everything. And it seems to me that for you, Sports has been a subtext, and reading, writing, jazz, whatever, uh, Islam has been the center, right? In the book you talk about, uh, I'm a writer who played basketball, not the other way around. So when you were playing the game, and you're at the top of the game, best player, I mean, was it still sort of like, this is, this is small, this is just now, but what I'm going to do, what I have to do is much bigger? Uh, I didn't think it was small, but... Uh because I was getting criticized so much, I, I was doing my job and the Lakers weren't winning until we got magic. So everybody was criticizing me because I wasn't able to take us across the finish line and, and win the championship. And uh, that got tiresome. That got tiresome. So, so now you make me tiresome. think, I wonder if other people are thinking, hearing that, remember the moment in Airplane, right? Who remembers Kareem in Airplane? A couple people, incredible moment. So in, in jokes, they say there is a grain of truth. So was there a grain of truth in what you said to the kid? Like, I'm busting my buns every night. What's your dad doing? I, I was busting my buns every night and uh, getting criticized. So, you know, it, it's, it, it was a no-win situation. Yeah. What, one of the things you say in the book, and you talk a lot more about politics and what's going on in America than basketball, even though there's a great chapter about sports, but you say... We have to reject the notion that our candidates, our presidential candidates, are saviors. And in a year when we've had Trump, and I can only imagine what this group of Manhattanites thinks about Trump, but we understand intellectually he's a savior for other people, right? And Bernie Sanders was considered a savior for his folks. Um, and Hillary skipped that whole thing for whatever reason. But do you, isn't it natural for human beings to want their leaders to be saviors like that? Well, I think uh, human beings should expect the best from the people that they choose to lead them. Uh, usually we try to choose people who lead us that have uh, good qualities of, of, of leadership. Uh, we try to identify those uh, in the campaign and then cast our vote. But we want to love them, right? We have the beer test. It's never just like, she's the most qualified, he's the most intelligent. No, it's like... Do I love that person the way we loved Kennedy or Reagan or Obama or? I, I, I don't know if that's the case, if we have to love them. Um, we do have to respect them and we do have to hold them up to a very high standard. What do you think about Obama? Where do you rate him in terms of the presidents who you've seen and studied? Is he one of the greats? Is he in the middle? Is he on the low side, what is he for you? I think President Obama is one of the greats and he would have done a lot better yes, if he had Yes, clap for that, please. A lot of people disagree with that. <laughs> I think it was just a, a rotten deal that the, the Republicans decided to oppose everything that he uh, brought up. 
we, we could have achieved a whole lot more if they had tried to work with him rather than um, be so upset at the color of his skin that they, they couldn't work with him. That, that was ridiculous. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, this is one of the things that has enraged me most about the last eight years, that before he was even inaugurated, they decided we will stop everything. And when you say everything, you're not exaggerating. You want to name a post office? That's going to take a month. You want to change health care? Forget about it. We're not doing that at all. Right. And, um, and you can't write about the Obama administration without an entire chapter explaining well, yeah, he had this other party that just decided we're just going to be in opposition to him and just going to stop him on everything. I mean, we're not even going to let him appoint a Supreme Court justice. When does that happen? That, that, that's not American. It's, it's, this is the first time, and uh, I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I don't want to, and 
a lot of people agree with you on that point. I don't want to link it all to him being black because I feel like the Republican Party was developing into such an opposition party that if Hillary had won that 08 race, they would have just trained those guns on her and said, she's the Democrat we hate. You know, we're, we're going to do the same thing to her. I'm, I, are you sure that it's about him being black? Well, I know it has a, it has a major... Uh, effect on their thinking. I, I don't know if it's exclusively because sure. he's black, but I, I'm, I'm sure it has a major effect on their thinking. One of the things you talk about in the book is, is there's a strident critique of media, of news media. Um, and one of the interesting things you say is, do not move the integrity line. And part of what is happening is that the Republicans are so crazy that for media to seem objective, they have to go, well, some people wonder if Obama is not from America, right? Like, just, they can't just dismiss the other side because they're afraid of seeming not objective. Um, and thus, the integrity line gets moved. How do we stop that? I don't think we can because uh, they're being very disingenuous. They, they, they're not really telling the truth about their own feelings. So um, what, what they have to say really comes across to me as a lie and, uh, they, or self-delusion. I mean, you know, that is so true. And I think that, uh, I mean, I know that at MSNBC, we often wondered, like, these people on the right, from a congressman to a senator to, a, to you know, an Ann Coulter, a Bill Roth, do they really believe what they're saying? Because they would seem like performance artists. Like, I think they think that the left is naive. But they believe we mean what we say. I'm like, do you even mean what you're talking? You can't really mean that. I, I wonder, you know, when they look in the mirror, if they can honestly say, you know, geez, I, I, I speak the truth. They, they're not speaking the truth. Uh, I, I can't see them in any sense uh, seeing themselves in that light. But if we don't have, and you make a really serious point, if we don't have a serious media, then we will not be an educated citizen and we can't, citizens and we can't have uh, a real democracy. We, we can't have a, a real democracy if people can't educate themselves uh, as to what the issues are uh, with facts. I mean, we're all entitled to our opinions, but we're not entitled to our facts. Facts are real things. And uh, the debate has to be based on fact. And, you know, and it bothers me when people say each side has their own facts. Because as a liberal, there is nothing that I believe that there's scientists who are going, that's not true or there's experts going, that's not true. But there's a bunch of stuff on the right that they believe that there's act, that the 99% of the scientific community says that's not true and the 1% was founded by the Koch brothers. So right. <laughs> it's really 100%, but they point to the 1% and they get that. What, where do we go from here? Oh, we, we just gotta get some of those people out of office. And uh, you know, we, as, uh, as President Obama has said a number of times, uh, don't boo, vote. Right. And if we can do that, uh, get everybody involved that uh, feels strongly about this issue, we, we will get some of these people out of office and be able to do what we need to do for our country. You also make a serious point about um, we need to have more black people in media. Um, and I know you're old enough to remember Julia, right? When you yes, know, like, A black person, thank you, a black person came on television. Oh my God, a black person on television. Right. And, you know, we're past that, but there's still very few dramatic stars, right? There's not that many comedic stars, but there's a couple. Um, do you think that putting more black people on television, dramatic television, that would make a significant difference? I think it, uh, just having 
seeing black people in ordinary roles, uh, just the, this, the way that uh, for the past eight years, uh, all the children in our country have seen uh, an African-American president, and that, that really has affected them in a very positive way. I think when you see uh, blacks doing ordinary things on, on TV, all of a sudden it, it takes the exotic aspect of it out of the, the picture, and people can accept people for what they have to offer as opposed to uh, what their ethnicity is. You talk about in this book um, that black people are quite often suffering from PTSD, especially black people in the hood, and that is more dangerous for them than you know the, the violence that's happening around them. And it's probably caused the violence. Of course, yeah, no, of course, caused by the violence. Why? Yeah. I mean, talk about the PTSD that you because that phrase is not is real, but it's not usually associated with those folks. Um, you know, who are in the struggle. Well, you, you live in Brooklyn. Uh, there are neighborhoods in Brooklyn where people have been stopped for no reason uh, uh, several dozen times. Mm -hmm. And you live under that type of, uh, of oppression, uh, you're going to react in, in some ways that, that aren't positive. And uh, people have to recognize this and, and do the right thing in, in terms of how we train our police. Because uh, if, if we don't change the way we train our police, this will keep happening. and. Uh, these pathologies will persist. Let me ask you about something that happened to you a while ago, and I wonder how you dealt with it, right? Because there was a fire, right, many years yeah. ago at your house that uh, burned your house, but we can live with that. But then your record collection and other things that were very valuable to you yeah. were lost. Um, I mean, one of those sort of catastrophic moments that a lot of people don't experience. How do you go forward from that moment when you're like, wow, like this thing that I've spent years collecting is so important to me, has been lost. How do you move forward from that? Well, you know, I, I just took comfort in the fact that no one got hurt. I just lost things. Things can be replaced. And, you know, I, I just moved on because there was nothing I could do about it. So, you know, my, my record collection was a big blob of vinyl in my front yard. That, that's the way it goes. I mean, is your faith helpful in difficult moments like that? Uh, my faith was very helpful to me at that point, yes, absolutely. Was your faith helpful to you as a player? Yes, it was, because, uh, you know, I have to accept uh, the outcomes, no matter what, whether they're positive or negative, uh, in my opinion. I have to accept it and, and uh, keep doing the right thing. I mean, I look at a player like Mariano Rivera, and we see several, you know, extremely religious players who do very, very well, and I wonder if you know, putting it all in God's hands and not thinking I have control but God has control or Allah um, allows you to release some and just perform and not worry about the outcome. Is that, does that happen? Yeah, I, I think that, that happened to me earlier than even when I became Muslim. I, I can only go out there and do the best I can on the court and then, uh, you know, the, the rest is up to, to fate or however you want to describe it. It's, you know, before when we were talking and I was like, you know, so when you were in college, you know, you were the best player in the country. And he's like, well, that was the rumor. I mean, <laughs> I mean it wasn't the rumor. It's obvious. I mean, when the UCLA freshman squad beat the reigning champion varsity, you must have said, I, I think I got something here. Yeah, it, it was, uh, that was actually kind of embarrassing because uh, the UCLA varsity team uh, were number one in the country, but number two on campus. Uh, <laughs> it, made, it made for an interesting dynamic that year. Did you, know? you get hazed for that? No, I didn't. Uh, had people coming, uh, the freshmen played before the varsity and we had more people at our games. People would leave after, <laughs> after our games. 
a lot and, of the times. And the older guys didn't try to like. No, they just were, they were waiting for me to become a, a varsity player and we could go on and uh, win the NCAA championship. That period uh, in America and your life was really, you know, really heavy. You write about not go choosing, personally boycotting the 1968 Olympics, um, partly because of what Muhammad Ali uh, inspired in you. Talk a little bit about why you made that decision. Well, um, Avery Brundage was the chairman of the American uh, Olympic Committee, and uh, in 1936, he refused to allow uh, Jewish players to be on the Olympic team because it was going to offend Hitler. And uh, I was not going to do anything for that individual whatsoever. I, I wasn't even going to take a meeting with him. What kind of reasoning is that? We don't want to, we don't want to piss off Hitler, so yeah, let's right. do, like, who thinks like that? Well, in 1936, Hitler hadn't reached his, his stride. But um, uh, a lot of people were kind of aware that something bad was coming. But around that time, um, you are exploring Islam and yes. moving toward it. And then in 71, you convert to Islam. Well, uh, I, I converted uh, publicly. Uh, I had become Muslim earlier than that. And I, I took a couple of years before I went public with it because I wanted to make sure that it was something that fit. And, so not something that I would abandon uh, along the way. Yeah. Well, how did you know that it, that it fit? I realized that uh, for me it was, uh, had to do with morality and, and how to live my life, and it, it really didn't need to be a, a public issue. Yeah. It has become an extreme public issue. It seems like Islamophobia yeah. is the only uh, ism that's, that's okay. You know, even a liberal like Bill Maher can be Islamophobic on his show, and people are not saying, dude, what are you talking about? If he was racist or sexist, the show would end, people would attack him, but his Islamophobia is more acceptable because people find it like, complicated. Um, what would you like Americans in general to know about Islam that might take some of the air out of the Islamophobia. Uh, I would tell all Americans that uh, Muslim Americans are loyal citizens. Uh, the, the crazy people that come here and, and commit terrorist, terroristic acts are criminals. And uh, Islam does not teach people to, to do that. And uh, when they say uh, Islamic terrorism, that, that is a misnomer because Islam doesn't teach terrorism. It teaches us to try to get along with people and to live with them in harmony. And uh, that, that's what Muslims should be about, and uh, that's what, by and large, American Muslims are about. I mean, is the religion to blame at all? Uh, I don't think the religion is, is, is to blame. I think uh, the distortions that uh, the people from ISIS, uh, they're, they're fascists. They decided that they're right about everything, and everybody has to follow their guide, and um, they can murder, and main people, and this is, a, this is a horror. This is not supposed to be what Islam is about. Speaking of fascists, we have our own in this country, or wannabe fascists. Um, you know, you've been studying America for a long time. Why do you think Donald Trump has risen at this time with this message of hate? I, I think there's a, a lot of people that have a nostalgia for uh, America looking like it used to look in the 40s and 50s when people of European descent uh, had control over all the levers of power. That's not, the, that's not happening now, uh, and, and America's complexion is starting to get a little bit brown, 
and uh, some people see that that change as a, a threat. It's not a threat, but um, you know, there's there's been dark Americans here ever since uh, we started to import slaves. <laughs> Even though there was a three-fifths compromise, uh, but the, that I was mean, the case. The, the notion that he sets out that white people are not in control anymore, that in and of itself is a lie. That's a lie. Right? Yeah, it's um, still white supremacist nation, right? Even if you have a black president, he's still dealing with white privilege, white supremacy. So he's telling them a lie to begin with, that begin they're not with, in yeah. power anymore. Yeah, they, they are in power, they, especially economically. Uh, People of, uh, people of color really do not have the economic power to, to challenge uh, the, the ruling class. Uh, I, I don't think that's ever gonna happen. Yeah, in the book you say racism will never end, but are you saying anti-black racism will never end or just prejudice no, will never I, end? I think it, it is human nature to feel a little bit suspicious about people that don't look like you. Uh, that it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, uh, a Chinese person sees a white person, they, they, they want to know what, what's with that, you know. Um, that is a, a natural aspect of, of human nature, and we have to understand that and deal with it and make sure that it doesn't interfere with uh, our ability to uh, respect and appreciate our, our, our fellow citizens. One of the, amen, you can, okay, go ahead, sister, you can clap for that. That's what's up, yeah, no. Um, last thing, you, one of the more interesting points you make, my life as an athlete taught me how to live as a man. What lessons did you take from the court that showed you how to live as a man? Well, I, I think just uh, that you have to prepare to be the best that you can be at whatever it is that you choose to do, and that you uh, have, to, have to work with other people in order to achieve great things. Okay, those are primarily the John Wooden lessons. What did you learn <laughs> in the NBA? What did I learn in and the that, NBA? And not that those two things are very important, but they we know that's important. what John Wooden is all about. What did you learn in the NBA? Uh, in the NBA, I, I learned that uh, if you're going to going to do well, you have to have the right people around you. And uh, as individuals, we have to we have to choose the right people, the, the right uh, friends for our kids. All of these things. It, it goes on and on out from uh, the, the individual out to the uh, to the group. That we have to make good choices and do the best we can. Man, you were. A star without being egoed out. You were always a team player. I think we all could see that. So thank you for your example as a man, as a writer, and as a player. And we appreciate you. Thank you very much. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. You usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus 
a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Toray for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The battle now is the policing crisis. Um, what do you think of the? What do you think is the root of that problem? And what can we do about it? The root of that problem, in in my opinion, is all of the myths and the fear and stereotypes. Okay, the myth uh, that uh, blacks are criminally inclined, and then the, the stereotype of the black thug, and then that creates fear, and uh, police feel that they're dealing with uh, someone that that could kill me. I, going to have to protect myself, and they shoot first and, and, and ask questions later. Um, you know, it's uh, Willie Horton. All, uh, you know, Willie Horton is the average, unfortunately, it, it seems that Willie Horton is the average policeman's idea of uh, a black male, and um, that, that fear seems to, to, to take over. It's interesting you ascribe fear and bias rather than anything evil in intent. Is that, is that how you see it? That they're not being evil, they're just being afraid because the, of the biases? Yeah, the, the biases and just everything that they've been told uh, about, uh, about black people. This whole idea of uh, a national stop and frisk. Uh, talk to any of the people that lived in Brooklyn. You, know, you had people that were stopped outside their homes 20 and 30 times, frisked, uh, you know, hassled. And, you know, it's, it's a, for the police, it's, oh, well, this, this is just our job because uh, this is a criminal neighborhood. So anyone who lives there has to be subjected to, to this type of harassment. It's absurd. Yeah. But this is uh, something that has taken root and has infected the police culture. And, uh, the negative aspects of it are, are what we see, you know, all these dead bodies of uh, black men who uh, were in the wrong place at the wrong time and, and end up dead. It's, it's horrible. I mean, I, I see a lot of fear in certain officers. I think, you know, what happened in Tulsa perhaps seems to be the result of fear of the black body. Um, but there also seems to be, because of the war on drugs, an over-engagement with black people, right? Like they are being sent to swarm into black communities and they may not all be evil, but because you have an abundance of, of interactions here and a minority of interactions in the white community, yes, like negative things, you know, difficult things, tragic things are going to happen in the black community. And I would like to see the end of the war on drugs and pulling back some of these officers. When uh, the state of Washington decided that they were going to legalize marijuana. Mm -hmm. The mayor of Seattle came out and said, look, uh, the marijuana laws were 
basically they're in place so that we can harass black people. The, the mayor just came out and, and said it, you know, because that, that is always a, an excuse. Um, geez, this is the war on drugs. We have to, we have to do this. And then the, the whole uh, trend toward the militarization of, of the police forces. Um, I talked with, uh, you know, Dr. Edwards, and he said... Uh, Harry Edwards. Dr. Harry Edwards, yeah. And he, he said, we got to get to a point where instead of people in the community talking about the police, they need to be able to talk about our police. Yes. And the police... Uh, agencies have to go from talking about those people to the people that we protect and serve. Yes. And when those bridges are established, you get the community uh, policing that works. Um, black Americans need good policing in, in, in their communities. Yes. But uh, one of the reasons that uh, black communities are, are so um, associated with crime is the fact that black Americans have been denied opportunities and education uh, to to participate in the society in our society. Yes. And so that desperation uh, creates criminal activity. That's the only way uh, a lot of uh, Black Americans can get involved in any uh, any business. Yeah. So the drug business uh, sometimes is the only thing that. Uh, they have any access to. I mean, would you have, when you take so much wealth out of the community and you take so many people's ability to join the above ground economy because you've slapped them with a felony because you stopped and frisked them, they weren't doing anything wrong, but you, and now they have a record. A record, yeah. Y you've taken away so many people's ability to be in the system, right? right? And you've taken so away so much money that people need to do something and we're in this situation. Right. They, and, the whole trend of uh, last hired and first fired, again, uh, you know, that's an issue uh, that, that plays in this also. One of the things you say in the book is there will never be an end to racism. What do you mean by that? I mean that people will always be suspicious of other people who don't look like them. That, that is a natural human uh, response to... Uh, different ethnicities. So uh, that, that's always something that's in the back of people's minds. Uh, even among uh, cultures, uh, you know, the, the slave trade got, uh, got its footing because the, uh, the African people living on, on the coastline uh, would sell the people living on the interior to the Europeans. Uh, hey, we can get rid of these people. Um, so, you know, just that type of difference, you know, among people of, of basically the same ethnicity. Uh, well, they speak a different language. We don't trust them. Mm. You know, there, there's always some difference there that uh, justifies, jeez, uh, no, we can't deal with these people. They, they're a threat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, black people are, are, are seen as a threat unless uh, we want, if we want to work for free, mm. everything would be fine. <laughs> um. The rise of the Trump phenomenon. Um, in the book, you partly blame that on us, right? You say voters are the real villains. Our laziness and arrogance has allowed our system to be polluted. So do you think that, that this is our fault as a people? The fact that we don't want to um, 
take the trouble to investigate and understand what the issues are and what the candidates' uh, positions on these issues. It, if, if we're ignorant, uh, how are we going to vote uh, intelligently? How is that going to happen? What, do you, what else do you think uh, explains his rise? And, you know, you're an historian. Is there any antecedent that you see? The, just the nostalgia for the way that things were. Okay, the, prior to the Civil War, the wealthiest people per capita in the world were Americans that lived in, in the cotton-producing South because cotton uh, was more or less like oil is now, essential yeah. for, uh, for industry. Yeah. So uh, people who were supplying cotton were uh, making money hand over fist and uh, not having to pay the people who, uh, who worked there, just uh, that was wonderful. Um, that type of wealth uh, just was unbelievable, you know. So uh, there, there's a nostalgia for, for that. And um, I think that uh, people subconsciously relate to that. And, and it's, uh, it's had a very negative effect on our culture. Yeah. Because uh, that it's, it's like ingrained. Let's talk about somebody who you were friends with who was extraordinary, Bruce Lee. Right? You studied with him when you were at UCLA, right? And you, you were part of a movie with him. Uh, talk about just being around him and what you learned from, from, from fighting with him and training with him. Geez, I, I learned a lot about uh, the, the culture of the, the Asian martial arts, how it, it was so... Um, every part, every, every art, uh, let's say you have... Uh, Southern Chinese style. If you, if you studied Wing Chun or White Crane or no one, no one else's style was any good. They're, they're very, very parochial, you know. It's just our, our style is the only valid style. Everything else stinks. And Bruce, is, Bruce was eclectic. He said, depending on uh, your physique and... Um, It'll be like water. Yeah, right. It'd be like water, and uh, you have to, to to fill the vessel that you have. Yeah. So um, he said you, you have to borrow from all the styles, and you have to understand uh, all the styles in order to defend yourself. And so it, he he, uh, he trained people who were were not uh, Chinese. He didn't care uh, what your ethnicity was. He just if you, if you want to train, and you were going to work out and. Uh, do the things that you have to do to, to, to learn the art. Come on in and let's get started. Did you take any of those lessons from Bruce Lee onto the basketball court? Well, just the whole art of preparation. He said, you've got to be prepared. So you've got to be in shape and you've got to understand uh, how people are going to approach you, uh, you know, different types of uh, uh, martial art. Uh, for example, um, the, the, uh, the jiu-jitsu people, when they went into the mixed martial arts, they, they dominated because no one else had trained in jiu-jitsu. And they dominated for a while until everybody else learned jiu-jitsu. And then all of a sudden, the jiu-jitsu guys realized that uh, they didn't know how to box very well. And they started getting knocked out. So, you know, it, you, you have to be eclectic and, and understand the world that you're in and uh, 
the different uh, forces within that world and uh, prepare for it. I mean, it's so amazing to see you uh, fighting with him in these movies. And I mean, you've been in combat with a lot of people, right, on the basketball court and in martial arts. Being in combat with Bruce Lee, who's perhaps the most extraordinary fighter of, you know, what was that like? Like, this, the, yeah. Bruce, uh, Bruce was so quick. And his ability to, to move, I mean, um, you'd have to get him in a, in a really small space to, to get close to him. I mean, he absolutely, the, the spacing aspect of, of fighting, you know, how far away you are from someone, that was the crucial thing. You know, you, you have to know what to do at, at certain spaces. And also, you have to know uh, some grappling arts when there's contact and when you go to the ground. You have to know how to how to deal with those uh, different aspects of, of fighting, but he had it all down. Part of what's special, what was special about you as a player, is you were a team player, right? And you would sacrifice your personal glory, right, to make the team better. How do you get to that mindset, and why did so many players are not on that mindset? Uh, I got to that mindset because I was able to see Bill Russell play when I was in high school, and I absorbed those lessons. My high school coach pointed out to me how Bill Russell was dominating the game from the defensive end of the court and you know, sacrificing his offensive uh, potential to make his team better. So I got that, and then John Wooden just underlined it. So you were getting that message from high school. From high school on. It, it would seem that that as a young man, the example of Wilt would be more exciting, right? Who's very much a star as opposed to Bill, who was very much part of the group. And, I, you know, I, I, I knew Wilt while I was in high school. He lived in New York while he was playing for Philadelphia. He, he lived in New York. I, I'd see him. Uh, sometimes I'd go to his club, you know. I, I, I knew Wilt. But uh, I realized... Uh, very early on that uh, Bill Russell, he, he had it down in terms of how to win games. And that was what was important. And, you know, I, I saw Wilt play the year he averaged 55 points. Uh, I, I saw that. I mean, Shaquille talks about being the most dominant. Uh, he, didn't, <laughs> he didn't see Wilt, you know, <laughs> before he, he was born. And, uh, Did he ever give you any playing advice? Well, yeah. No. No? No. <laughs> not not a not a not a bit. I used to we he used to uh lift weights up at the uh, Y on 135th Street. And you know, I sometimes I'd go in there and we'd play a uh, horse and he there were certain parts of the court that he couldn't shoot from. Like right in front of the basket about 8 feet out, he couldn't make a shot from there. Like a free throw. A little bit shorter than a free throw, you know, but just inside there. There were certain shots that he he, he couldn't make. It was interesting. He, he had, like, holes in his game. And when I got into the professional, to the, when I got into the NBA, um, he had, like, so concentrated on lifting weights, he, he was muscle-bound. And, uh, you know, basketball is a game. You've got to be flexible and, and have that kind of durability. Uh, you can't be like uh, concrete. You know, he, he's more like concrete. You have to be like a rubber man to play professional basketball. So I, I think... Um, his preparation did not serve uh, his game very well.
I love the image of young Kareem looking at Wilt and saying, Yo, man, you're not doing it right. I'm not fooled. He's awesome. Thanks to Kareem for your time, and thanks to you for listening. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please say hi. And if you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review. It helps a lot. And talk about it on your socials. Let the people know what's really good. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Matt Ford and Chris Basil, with help from Shelby Royston, William Jolly, Candid Nicole, and Cadence 13 Studios, with photographs by Chuck Marcus. We're here to give you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. And I hope this show can help you with that. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.